how I wrote that book was actually a really interesting, uh, interesting story. I literally published a piece of, uh, one piece every single day on Instagram, just like on, via, via my stories on there. And that built the readership for the book. So the entire book was published on, on Instagram before it was ever binded and turned into an actual book. And obviously there was a ton of editing that happened after that, but it got people emotionally invested in the book. Um, and I actually have one minute, please. Uh, right beside me. But something I also did was I kept track of everyone who was responding to the stories and literally uh, wrote their names like within, within the book. So when they ordered it and they got in the mail, you know, they're, they had a book that was dedicated to them. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show, an interview podcast where my friend Lewis and I interview high performing people, whether that be entrepreneurs, CEOs, rappers, whatever it may be, we sit them down and we ask them questions about how they did it, how they got there. And it's been an amazing ride. And we've got another amazing episode for you today. Today, we are joined by the one and only Cole Schaefer from Honey Copy. Cole's a tough guy to introduce because he's got so much going on. He's a blogger with multiple email lists with over 10,000 readers on those lists. He's a poet. He's a freelancer. He's a branding expert. He's also just a very cool vibe kind of guy. He lives in Nashville. We get into why he is so passionate about Nashville in this interview. We also discuss his writing process, who he draws inspiration from and how he draws inspiration from them. Some of the interesting things that have happened to him from this mixed type career he's pursued. We get into his story of how he got into this, how he makes his money, how he recommends others do the same. And overall, it is a high energy I think it's a inspiring conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it as much as we did. And I'm going to switch over to it right now. Cole, welcome back to the Lewis and Kyle show. Stoked to be here, man. Uh, I know we've been scheduling and rescheduling this a few times, so I'm, I'm glad we could finally make it work. Well, that's totally okay. Uh, you're the first guest that we're going to interview for the second time. So uh, congratulations on that. <laughs> but... I think where we want to start is the, the Belarus story. Uh, how did that come about? What was happening? Where were you in, in your life at that point? Just really give us the, give us the whole thing. <laughs> sure. So I was about two or three years into my freelance writing journey. I had uh, an established clientele and uh, randomly one day, you know, I had been blogging and writing a bunch and randomly one day I got an email from this Belarusian entrepreneur slash angel investor uh, and I and I can't give you the name but he's worth millions and millions of dollars and is, is sort of like the biggest venture capitalist over there um, and he just emailed me out of the blue and he was super short and to the point and basically said he wanted to call me and so he called me out of the blue and next thing I knew we were on the phone and he basically said, how much, how much do I have to pay you to, to, to fly you out here? Uh, and he caught me really off guard. And so I just threw out a number that was pretty high, uh, per day. And he just immediately was like, yes, you know, sure. Um, which there's a really good freelancing lesson there. Never throw out price first, always ask what the budget is. Uh, because generally it's higher than what you might assume. But anyway, so next thing I knew, I'm flying out to Minsk, Belarus. And uh, I flew from Chicago. So I was, no, I was in Nashville. So I flew from Nashville to Chicago, then Chicago to Warsaw, then Warsaw to Minsk. And I remember when I landed there, 
it was uh, just a, a nasty kind of winter storm. And it, it almost felt like if you looked up the images of the airport, it looks like something out of Star Wars, like the Empire Strikes Back. It's, it's insane. Um, super, super, super dictator type of feel. And uh, we landed on the, the runway and we get in this bus and snow is blowing across the runway. It's freezing and we show up at the airport and I try to get through customs and it takes like 30 or 40 minutes. And there's these 10 kind of like armed guards hanging out there that all look like, you know, the, the evil sort of villains in James Bond or something. I mean, they just look insane. And uh, eventually I end up at the the hotel and like as soon as I'm at the hotel I'm researching flights back home uh, because I am <laughs> so far out of my element and there's some countries you can go and get by with just like knowing English but I'm going to say in Belarus maybe 10% of the population really knows English so it's just really hard to get anywhere and and all the signage is just in in, in a language I, I can't even understand but anyways um, it ended up being one of the bigger sort of transformative experiences of my life, just being there at the age of 24, 25, uh, leading several startups on writing copy for their brand and, and marketing and advertising and, and, and all that good stuff. So it was, it was insane. Why didn't you book your flight back? So at the time I remember I called up my, it was late at night and I called up my brother and I called up my dad. And, uh, my dad gave me some really good advice. He just was like, you know, you've, you've made enough dough, uh, so far freelancing that at any point in time, you can book a flight back home. You can pay for it. You'll be fine. So why not just take it a day at a time and give yourself permission? Like at any moment, if I just decide, Hey, I'm, this is too much and I need to make my way back home. Um, you know, you can do that, but but just take it a day at a time and a day turned into two days and two days turned into three. And next thing I knew I was there for two weeks. That's such a crazy fun story. And we enjoyed it. We enjoyed your story so much. So, uh, last time we needed to hear it one more time, <laughs> but we hopefully want to, uh, break some new ground as well with the book pre-launch. You told us about what is the new book that you're releasing and kind of the summary elevator pitch for that project. Uh, the new book I'm releasing is, uh, it's called After Her, and it's a book of poetry, uh, and it's specifically around breakups and relationships and love. And uh, yeah, I, I, I wrote it right after a really, really tough breakup, and in a lot of ways, it was, I think, like the book I I used to sort of heal myself, you know, or at least come to terms with with that relationship coming to an end. And, um, my hope is that it'll, it'll really help a lot of people, you know, because I think that that's something everyone can, has in common to some degree, you know, love not working out or hurting or, uh, or whatever. Can you share an excerpt? Sure, man. Well, actually my book is not in front of me. You're so good. I, can't I didn't know if you had, if you had something off the top of like your a head poem, that, that might a, be a, a, a good lesson or something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have anything right in front of me. Um, I have a similar question. Maybe that yeah. might catch. So your other book of poetry, your promise with that book is I promise this book will make you feel something. Mm -hmm. That's like your, your one line hook. Do you have that for this book yet? Yes. Yeah. My, uh, so the, the line I first came to with this book was, so with one minute, please, it's, um, I promise I'll make you feel something with after her at first, it was, I promise to break your heart. 
Um, but I've meditated on that some and, and really reflected. And I think the book probably will break some people's hearts. <laughs> but I think it, I, the goal is also to help gently remind people and encourage them to live and to love in such a way that they can they can con they can continue to get their heart broken. Um, I think a lot of times we live trying to sort of cushion ourselves, you know, from, from pain or trying to numb the pain or trying to not put ourselves in positions where we can get hurt, whether that's romantically or just through life or going after big opportunities, you know, and, um, I'm hoping by the end of that book, um, I try to really end it in a, in a beautiful and sort of positive and like loving way. And I'm, I hope by the end of it, you know, not only does it fuck people up, but it also encourage, encourages them to never live to where they're not allowing themselves to get fucked up. You know, I think there's only so much we should really be protecting ourselves because it, uh, costs us vulnerability. I think that's really important. I think that's something we're starting to hear on almost every podcast that lesson of just on the podcast we recorded an hour or so ago, this person talked about how, you know, every billionaire he's ever met has also been bankrupt before. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think you could kind of say the similar analogy that all these people who live to play it safe, right. Never end up losing anything, but they never end up winning anything either. And that's arguably a much worse position to be in, whether that's like relationships or business or any other context. So that's been one of the recurring themes that's started to crystallize in front of my eyes. I'm hearing it so much. So maybe I'll the life without putting your heart on the line. Isn't really life at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I like that a lot. Funny enough, the, the, guy gave him, the yeah. billionaire advice was a literal, <laughs> uh, literal heart, literal, uh, heart surgeon. So hard on the line. That's, that's a funny, funny metaphor there. But I have a question about, you know, a lot of people when they kind of have a, a split career between two different things, they got, you know, their side job and their main job, they got what they do for because they need to do it and what they do because they love to do it for you both of those are writing what was your moment where you decided like writing is going to be what you're taking seriously was it something that you stumbled into or something you've known for quite a long time was like i'm going to support myself as a writer what was the process of stepping into this split career all centered around writing being the core skill i so i can't remember the exact moment i i know that and I, and I would say if like someone asked me this 50 times, I'd probably answer it 50 different ways. I know when I first understood like the power of writing, it was right after my grandmother had died when I was a freshman in, in college. She, uh, was my best friend and, um, really sort of the, the, the matriarch of, of my entire family. And she dropped dead of an aneurysm in, uh, her kitchen. It was right after. Uh, my grandfather and her, my grandfather was telling me they, that day they were, you know, flirting and kind of having fun and acting like kids again. And they went to get ice cream from the freezer and they made each other a bowl of ice cream and she watched Korean dramas. Um, she was full Japanese. So that was like kind of a thing for, for her. She loved Korean dramas. Um, and he, he loved watching sports and he went to the other room, uh, to watch sports and heard a crash and a scream. And, um, she had, was, was on the floor. And so that was my freshman year of college. And at the time I was playing uh, college basketball and she was pretty much at every single one of those basketball games. She never missed any of them. I'm going to say if I had, 
a thousand, she might have made it to nine hundred and fifty. I mean, she she was there literally every every single game, and I think sometimes you know those things happen, and for whatever reason, you know the party's sort of over. Um, I don't I don't know what that is, but I think that a lot of living is sort of deciding when it's time to leave the party, whether that's actually like very uh, literal, you know, whether you're like like we've all been to these these parties or these festivities and um, it's, it's how fun you have there is like how, when you decide to actually leave, is it at the end of the night or is it like midway through? But, um, but yeah, I think like when she, when she passed, I, I just no longer had it in me to play basketball. And so there was this really beautiful cathedral that was at my campus in Louisville, Kentucky. I went to a, a Catholic school called Bellarmine and it was high up on the hill and it had these huge 20 foot long window panes and you could uh, just walk in there at all hours and go up to the loft and there was a piano and I didn't know how to play piano at the time but I would just kind of thumb around and learn chords and I would uh, do some writing to those chords and that was a uh, I spent a lot of time in there sort of processing her death and um, writing and, and sort of writing my th way through it. Uh, and while I never actually pursued a career or a vocation or even a hobby in music or piano or anything like that, um, writing and music have ever since then were very, um, one in the same for me, you know, even now when I write, um, I'm, I, I generally always write to music, whether that's Mozart and Beethoven or the weekend or Johnny Cash, I'm always writing to, to music. Um, but that was sort of the moment where, uh, I realized like writing maybe doesn't help us to say it helps us survive something or saves our lives. That's a little bit dramatic. I mean, you talked about the, the heart stent guy who invented the heart stent. I think that's something that saves your life. But, uh, I, I realized in that moment that writing is certainly something that can help you get through something, you know, write your way through something, write your way uh, on the other side of a serious trauma. And I think it was in that moment that the, the seed was planted, but I didn't actually fully pursue that career until, you know, three or four years later after I had graduated and was out in the world. Well, that's a really beautiful story. Um, you know, I think that writing has built the entire world in which we inhabit, like, what else, like what else has created what's around us other than words and even the heart stent. It's like those, that was probably thought up and, and written out before it was even sketched, you know? And so I don't really know how those two things connect, but I feel like, um, it's, you know, you should give it more credit than you're, than you're giving it. Um, but that's a very beautiful story about your grandmother and a, a testament to, uh, you know, her own love for you being at so many baths. It's like, how much could she really enjoy middle school basketball? You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so I don't really have a question there, um, along those lines, but, but thank you for sharing that. Sure, man. Yeah. So I have a question. You have a incredibly deep, like storytelling ability. And mm -hmm. one thing I find really interesting is how you kind of not in that story as much as let's say the, Belarus story just romanticize these details and kind of paint it in this colorful way. And I know 
a lot of your writing and speaking has been inspired by specific figures. And I want to ask you about two of them in particular, what motivates you to model yourself as a writer after them and some of the ways that you practically try to borrow or improve upon their style to integrate into your own craft. And those are Hemingway and Bukowski. So I was curious if you could speak to why they draw your attention so much and what inspires you about them and how you integrate their ideas and their practices into your own. Sure. So to start with Hemingway, Hemingway's writing style is, is really a, a meditation and simplicity and how important it is to be able to write in such a way that everyone can understand you. Hemingway was sort of the first writer to come onto the scene and someone who had a master's degree or a, a doctorate or was highly, highly educated could read his books and fully understand everything and thoroughly enjoy them, right? And not feel like they were reading at some lower level. But then on the flip side of that, someone with a seventh grade education, right, who was a farmer in Iowa could read his books and understand every single word. They didn't have to have a thesaurus next to them. That to me is extraordinarily important. And it's something I try to really practice every time I sit down to write something. Uh, very rarely will you see me reach for words that are something you need to grab a dictionary uh, to, to look up or, or a thesaurus or whatever. Like you at, like most of the words I use, you understand. And I try to paint the imagery with metaphors and similes and, and doing, doing, doing things like that with the craft. Um, but I think something that Hemingway also did really well, and, and Bukowski did this well too, is that they very much so romanticized their lives. And I think sometimes people can frown on that, but I just haven't really figured out another way to live. I think it's so important to romanticize your life and romanticize your work and romanticize the people you meet and the moments you have. And whether it's drinking whiskey by the fire in Louisville, Kentucky with my best friend, Ian Holbrook, or it's uh, with, with the woman I thought I was going to marry in Denver, Colorado, having coffee at Black Eye Coffee, you know, like... I, I want to romanticize that because I, I think life would become boring with it. And I don't think I'd be really sucking the, 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 the morrow out of life, if you will. Um, but with that, with, with that romanticizing, there, there comes some really deep crashes too, right? Because you're feeling everything. So when it ends, you know, you, you now probably go lower than what most people go when, when shit hits the fan. And so that was something that really inspired me in both their writing is that they, they, they were so romantic about everything, you know, and, and Hemingway had a much more epic life than Bukowski did. Bukowski was mostly fucking and drinking and gambling and um, spending time with prostitutes and drug addicts. I mean, that was his life, but he romanticized the shit out of it, right? And Hemingway was hunting lions and getting in plane crashes and fighting wars and being a medic and, and doing some really cool shit like that. So, but, but that was the main takeaway is that never, never like, there's nothing too small that can happen in, in your day that isn't worth writing about. Um, and that has brought me a lot of fulfillment, uh, not just like in life, but also on the page. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah one Lois. piece of advice that I think helps a lot of people or helped me at least understand that a concept is so cliche, but it's, you know, being the hero of your own story. It's, there's a life where you just watch a ton of movies and kind of live vicariously through other people's exciting stories, or it's like, do you see yourself as the main character in an exciting plot? 
And I think that's like a much more rich way to live. And of course it comes with the highs and lows because a good story is not without highs and lows, but overall it's, it's a better lived life. Sure. Yeah, it absolutely is. So I want to ask you some of the business questions as well as kind of the romantic and everything like that. How did you get your start specifically? How did you create, turn a passion for writing into a sustainable income? Cause we have a lot of people who have a journaling habit and it helped them overcome and work through really, really important life events. And maybe they just enjoy blogging or they enjoy any form of writing, but they don't see it as a possibility that that can actually be their thing. How did you go from wanting to do it to doing it? Sure. So firstly, it was just, um, I mean, I, I, I hate this cliche. I'm going to use it in hopes to kind of jump from it to something else that I could use, but sort of burning your ships at shore. But I'm trying to think of a, a way I would even describe it. Yeah. So I think, so something everyone needs to, to eventually recognize. And I think that this is almost the jump you make from going from being a, a boy or a girl to a, a man and a woman, like going into adulthood. Um, and that's, that's recognizing that like all of us are dying, uh, for something. I feel like we all start dying the moment we sort of turn 18 and suddenly it's our responsibility to feed ourselves. Right. Or, and, and maybe that doesn't happen for some people until they're fucking 30, right. Because they're on their, their, their parents' pocketbook, but some people have it since 16, 18, 20, whatever. But you eventually realize like you're, you're killing off your youth for, for something and you have to decide like what that's going to be. Uh, for me, I eventually decided that that's going to be writing, right? Like, and, and again, I'm kind of romanticizing it here, but the reason I have made a living in writing is it's not just, oh, I'm, I'm trying to write, right? Like I'm, I'm realizing I'm, I've, I've killed off the past five years of my life to master this craft of writing and I'm nowhere close to mastering it. But when you, when you look at it in that light, all of a sudden it's not just writing, but it's while wow, I'm trading my life for something, right? I'm, I'm literally sacrificing part of my life to, to do this thing. And I'd say like, if, unless someone has that type of conviction with writing, they probably shouldn't do it. Um, truly, I think it's, it's way too hard of a craft, uh, to make a living in it, living in that, unless you have that type of conviction, you shouldn't pursue it. But if you do have that type of conviction, you do want to be great, um, or at the very least good. Uh, the way you would go about that is you would find some shitty job to pay the bills during the day. And at night you would bust your ass, uh, writing and writing and writing some more. You would cold email a bunch of different brands, um, and try to figure out ways you can, you can, uh, work with them, whether that's just reaching out and saying, Hey, I saw your, I see you're running a blog. Is there any way that I could, uh, write a blog for you all and pitching them on several ideas, whether that's reaching out to a brand whose packaging you saw in a store and you say, Hey, I think there's really some exciting ways we can, we can make this, the directions here, not read like directions. Uh, why don't you give me a shot at that? Um, it's really doing something that Kurt Vonnegut called, he, he called it moxie and that's a refusal to go unread, right? The refusal to go unseen or unheard. 
Um, and you, you have to have that as a rider. And as long as you, I think first comes the conviction, right? That, that this is what you want. And then comes like the moxie of, because it's what I want, I refuse to go unread or unheard or unseen. And then, uh, comes like following up with that. And that's essentially emailing people over and over again until someone eventually says yes. And the odds with that is generally like what I found, uh, if I might email a hundred different people, 10 of them might hit me back three of them might get on the phone, one of them might say yes, right? That, those are the odds you're against like early on in your, your writing career. And that's why like the conviction and the moxie is, is really important. Mm -hmm. What are you willing to kill your youth for is a super interesting framing of that question. it's like, what do I really care about enough to, to die for? And, uh, and the answer is you don't really know a lot of the time. Um, but I have a question and that is like, you speak like you're writing and do you think that that is because you've written so much or, or do you think that's something that you've always done? No, it's, it's certainly not something I've always done. I kind of going back to the conviction, I am definitely in this game to be the best. Right. And, and so, uh, early on when I started speaking and getting on podcasts, I noticed myself kind of stumbling like on my words and I still do it. Um, the first five Me to too. 10, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first five to 10 minutes of this podcast, I was extremely unhappy with how I spoke and that'll be something I review when it comes out. But early on, like I was listening to my podcast and I thought, Jesus Christ, I sound like a, a fucking idiot. Um, and something that's really interesting about writers and I've seen this a lot is that like when they're on the page, um, I use kind of like a, the swan metaphor, but when they're on the page, they're as elegant and as graceful as a swan on water. I mean, they're just smooth. And the main reason is because uh, they can edit, right? Like a lot of writers are heavy editors. Imagine if everything you said um, at any point in time, you could pause and then go back and say, oh, I was super long-winded here. I'm gonna cross that out and just say this cool shit down here. Writers can do that anytime they're on the page. And obviously there's, there's a, a ton of talent that goes into that, but there's also like a lot of editing. Um, but when that swan steps onto shore, right, and they're, they're, they're walking around the pond and they're on the grass, they're awkward and they're fumbling around and they have these big feet. I found writers tend to be that same way when they get off the page and they have to go into a spoken interview because all of a sudden they can't edit the shit they're saying. I was suffering from that same phenomenon where I, I would, speak and I'd listen to what I was saying. And I thought, man, that just sounds so awkward. So I hired a, uh, an actual podcasting coach to work with me. Um, and his name's Joe Ferrero, um, or Ferraro. I always fuck up his last name, <laughs> but, uh, he's been, he's been one of the greatest business investments I've ever made in myself, um, where he's helped me really lean into the storytelling side of me. And he's helped me, uh, he's, he's called me out on my bullshit when I get super long winded, or maybe I've, uh, not told a story in the most exciting of ways. Like we'll probably have a session on this podcast and a critique he'll give me is the Belarus story. You didn't say that with enough energy and we'll practice that. And I think anyone who acts like they can just step onto the scene and be a great speaker is probably full of shit. I mean, I was listening to a podcast the other day where Seth Godin was talking about how he doesn't think people should practice before interviews and that it should be natural. And I'm thinking, dude, you've, you've done thousands of speeches throughout your life. You can say that because you're so well practiced, 
but for some snotty nosed kid like myself who uh, can't speak very well, like you, you need to invest in some of that coaching. Um, and a good way to practice that, like the storytelling side, and I appreciate you saying that is uh, do it in your car when you're driving someplace, like just start telling a story to yourself, pretend there's an audience there and um, hire a coach, do all that. And, and slowly you'll, you'll improve. That's an excellent answer. After listening to this, Joe's going to hit Lewis and I up and say, Hey guys, I think we, I think we can do some work together. You guys need some help. <laughs> I doubt, I doubt he'll do that, but he's a good investment, man. I, I, I uh -huh. stick by that. Mabel, uh, I just want random idea in my head and Kyle's going to laugh at me for it. Uh, the other side of that could be, you know, business doing mock interviews and getting paid to do that. So if Joe's got any clients who, who want to do mock interviews and pay Lewis and Kyle to ask them questions, we'd be happy to entertain that. Uh, I don't have a job right now, so that could be a cool source of income if you want me to ask you questions and send them to your podcast coach. <laughs> just, just just free balling on air. Great uh, pitch. But there we go. So one thing that's really admirable about you and a lot of our other guests that draws us to them and makes us want to interview them is that in mainstream society, pretty much the only time we publicly see people outwardly saying that they're pursuing greatness is sports. And, you know, we have meet people mm -hmm. on this podcast who have other crafts and like have the same level of commitment as like a professional athlete or someone else. Like very few people, you know, you, know, you meet on the street are like, yeah, I'm out pursuing greatness. Uh, so one thing I want to ask you about that in the pursuit of greatness is how you manage. Well, like with a basketball game, for example, like you do your best and the game's over, but with the questions about perfectionism, like, you know, you're choose to release imperfect things all the time. Like how, what is your balance for shooting to be the best, but also like constantly having to publicize imperfect work? So that's something I'm not necessarily great at. Uh, and I think the question is, how do you, how do you pursue greatness? Um, while also like not allowing it to drive you mad in the fact that like you, you just Pretty can't much. be perfect. Yeah. So, um, I'm not, I'm not great at that. And I, I, uh, struggle with a dis disorder called OCD. So like, um, a, it's an obsessive compulsive disorder. So like I will have like an obsessive thought and I'll act on it. And it, it kind of turns into like a looping thing. Like, uh, a lot of times when people think of OCD, they think of you walk into a room and you have this thought that if you don't like turn on the lights 10 fucking times, the room's going to blow up. And that's like an example of OCD. But for a lot of people, they have it on kind of a spectrum. And for me, it's like, uh, if I don't, um, like around work, like if I don't put out an article a day, then all of a sudden I'm going to be irrelevant. People are going to stop reading me. That's a completely irrational thought, but it's, it's a form of OCD. And I think like a lot of people struggle with that in our culture because we're so, um, like bang, bang, bang with Twitter and Instagram and mm -hmm. you have to publish all the time. And so anyways, like this pursuit of greatness, like I'm, I'm constantly having to differentiate between what is, what makes sense in terms of like, I am, I'm putting in the work to try to be great and what is becoming sort of like an OCD behavior. Uh, to give you an example, the other day I was at the gym at like two, cause I always work out around two or three o'clock right before I dive into like my second, uh, reading and writing session. And I ran three miles and got like a, a really good lift in. And for whatever reason, like when I got home, I had this, 
this thought, I feel like I didn't hit it hard enough in the gym today. And it kept going and going and going until it's 8.30 at night. I've put on my shoes. I'm back at the gym and I'm doing 100 deadlifts uh, because I felt like I didn't hit it hard enough that day. Uh, and like, I'm not saying that to like romanticize my work ethic. I'm saying that because that's not like a healthy way to live. Um, and so I try to recognize that moments, those moments where with writing, if I wrote a really awesome article, uh, today and it, we get off this podcast and I feel like, man, I feel like I just didn't work hard enough today. If I find myself going and, and writing and, and writing two more articles at nine o'clock at night, it's really hard to differentiate between, am I doing that because I'm wanting to be great and these are the steps I need to take to, to be great? Or am I doing that because I'm being obsessive, right? And I'm, and I'm so concerned about not being great or like falling off or not being relevant that I have to put out two more articles a day. And, and, and so I don't have an answer on like how you balance those things because I'm, I'm not good at it at all. Um, and it's something I'm still, still kind of figuring out. Yeah. I'd share one thing I've been doing a lot and spoken about before on the podcast is kind of like my personal daily system. I just write out either the night before or morning of like the five things that have to get done to consider the day a win. Mm -hmm. Then if those five things are done, like I can, be, I can be done. And I love that. if I want to do more, right. If I have energy to continue, like, sure. I'll like go way past the list, but that's, it's like a clear like a very clear binary. You did enough. You didn't do enough. You, and you kind of think on the bigger scale. If I do these five things every day for this period of time, like I will be on track to get where I want to be in time. Right. And then on the days you don't, that's obviously the days you feel bad, but yeah. you try to minimize those days. Yeah. That's my system. At least I like that. Yeah. It's like you hit the five and you can consider it sort of an a plus for the day and anything you do extra yeah. is like fucking extra credit or something. I like that. Yeah. And then I try to keep a tally for the year of like yeah. how many of those days were wins and how many or not. And then vacation, all those other, other details. But one other area I want to ask you about is the a team. So you've started to, as you've gathered an audience and gathered a lot of knowledge on like being an online creator successfully, you started to like create a team and diversify your streams of income away from just writing. Uh, what is the purpose of the a team? I know it's cool now being able to follow up with you since the previous interview, cause it's way further along in its development. Uh, than it was just a few weeks ago. So what is the inspiration for this project, current stage of development and kind of future goals? Sure. So the A-Team is an online community based on Slack and it's for freelancers, creatives, entrepreneurs, um, CMOs, anyone who is ambitious and is doing something like more in a creative field. Uh, even though entrepreneurship might be in business, I still think it flexes a lot of creative muscles. Uh, and the goal is to kind of compile a 250 person group of just kick-ass people and allow them to sort of work off one another uh, and, and pass off leads and, and inspire each other and to collaborate on projects and, and uh, even mentor, mentor one another. I think the, the struggle with it has been what everybody has in common is is knowing me right because i've i've built it completely off my list and something i realized pretty early on with the a team is that if i am the bottleneck on that the a team can only get so big right um i have to it has to become a community that that functions organically like within itself um so that's something like we're constantly working on and we're starting to see that happen uh, i partnered with my brother connor schaefer on it 
um, who is a, a kick-ass marketer and he's he sort of fills all the buckets that I don't. So like I'm more creative, writer, um, old school advertising type of guy, right? And Connor is more growth hacking, uh, really understands paid ads. Under he's, he's super, super witty and, and smart and clever and, and knows like kind of all these areas of marketing that I don't fully understand. So we make a good partnership, but part of putting him in charge of the group, which I have, was to to ensure that it didn't become the Cole show um, because if it's my responsibility to keep the show running and once a day I have to like share a tip I, I just don't think that group is going to be all that valuable because I'm going to run out of tips and um, if you want tips just like join my fucking email list but for this group I really wanted it to be something where um, people can 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 literally grow and move up in their careers um, and it seems to be doing that right now, but we'll we'll continue to see. I'm, I've never done paid communities before, so it's it's been a fun, a fun and challenging ride. Absolutely. Um, I know that we asked about this last time, or we asked about something tangential, and it got a really interesting answer. But uh, how are cooking and riding related to you? Cooking and riding. Uh, so I I love cooking. And, um, I feel like I want to, I want to come up with like a good metaphor between the two. Okay. So the, the other day I was actually watching, um, Nora Ephron. So Nora Ephron's a fabulous writer. She, um, unfortunately passed, uh, fairly early, like in her career when she was in her early sixties to, um, I believe it was cancer, but she wrote um, multiple just stunning books and and movies as well. She directed several movies. One was um, a movie called uh, uh, Julie and Julia, and it, it was about like strictly about about cooking because she was huge into cooking. And something uh, the the main character Julie uh, said in one scene, and Julie was um, this 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 woman who worked a shitty day job that she didn't really like. And at night she would cook and, and ran a food blog. And something she said is she was like, something I love about cooking is that when, and I'm going to kind of butcher this line, but she said something along the lines of something I love about cooking is when, um, your day is, is terrible and nothing goes right. You can come home and you can mix butter with sugar, with chocolate, and uh, you can make a chocolate cream pie. And she's saying this as she's like making this delicious looking chocolate cream pie. Um, and I think that that's something that I have enjoyed about cooking in that in my life, there's a lot of uh, failure, unfortunately, right? When you're sort of like existing on this edge and sort of constantly pushing the boundary and uh, doing both advertising and poetry, you know, you can write like I'm about to release a poetry book and it could completely fucking flop. Um, but with cooking, something that's nice is that generally, if you're doing it correctly, you can take a ribeye from turnip truck down the street here in Nashville and throw it on the grill. Uh, and as long as you're paying attention, it's probably going to come off there pretty damn good. Now, if you're a professional chef and you are trying to become the greatest chef of all time, maybe you need to find a hobby where uh, there's a little let, there's a little um, uh, more certainty around success, but that is something I, I enjoy about cooking that generally it's done pretty quickly and it, it ends up being like fairly tasty. Uh, and I don't know, that's good for morale. <laughs> and the, the uh, one thing you brought up last time was the feedback loop and how like with writing, 
you know, it's out there and it can just continually, you can get information on it forever or regret it or, or whatever it might be. But like you cook a burger and it's not a good burger. It's like, it's over in an sure. hour or less. Sure. And so I think that was the, the, the parallel that I was sort of trying to draw out of you. But I, I thought about that a lot since you talked about it. And when I'm eating, I'm like, this is over after I'm, I'm finished eating. <laughs> yeah, there's less. I mean, there is less pressure, I think, around around cooking, and and that's a that's an. Uh, I do remember talking about that, and um, I probably I, I've also heard Seth Godin kind of riff on that because he's apparently just a fantastic cook, um, but he said something similar where, um, you know, something he loved about cooking is you do it, and an hour later, you know, it's done. Whereas he's used to doing these massive and super long projects, and I'm kind of the same way. Like when you're writing a when you're writing like a book of poetry, um, we're talking a year long endeavor, you know, and b between editing and reading, and after a year, then you finally know like did it hit, did it not? But uh, cooking, it's a much sort of smaller window, which is nice. So what are some things with this book of poetry specifically that you learned from doing the first one that are going to hopefully increase your probability of success? Because this isn't your first time releasing a book of poetry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think firstly, I, I, I feel like the book is legitimately better than the first one. I think uh, I'm, a, I'm a better writer than I was when I wrote One Minute Please, which was the first book you're referring to. Um, my readership has grown so naturally like that positions yourself to potentially sell more books because more people have, have read you. Um, but like, as far as like specific learnings go, um, I think with one minute, please, the mistake I made was I had, so how I wrote that book was actually a really interesting, uh, interesting story. I literally published a piece of, uh, one piece every single day on Instagram, just like on, via, via my stories on there. And that built the readership for the book. So the entire book was published on, on Instagram before it was ever binded and turned into an actual book. And obviously there was a ton of editing that happened after that, but it got people emotionally invested in the book. Um, and I actually have one minute, please, uh, right beside me. But something I also did was I kept track of everyone who was responding to the stories and literally, uh, wrote their names like within, within the book. So when they ordered it, and they got in the mail, you know, they're, they had a book that was dedicated to them. And I think not a lot of people ever go through life having a book dedicated to them. I think that's a, a special thing. So that book was very intimate for me, but anyways, like, I think the mistake I made with it was I felt like that consistent daily output maybe freed me up a little bit from needing a ton of hype and strategy behind the release. Um, and I was mistaken there. I think that even if you are putting in the daily effort to sort of market the book as you go, which is really important for a book to be successful, you really have to kick the shit out of the launch and do some, some cool stuff. So with after her, um, I just have like crazy stuff planned and have shot a, a huge video with my videographer and sort of co-creative director, Jake Heidecker. And I think it's just going to be a really, um, impressive, impressive launch. So that was kind of the lesson I learned is like, if you have something you're trying to sell, you know, fucking storm onto the scene, don't just kind of come in with like a whisper or a, or a awkward waving of the hand, you know? Well, I'm excited to see that hype video. I've seen the uh, one other TV commercial you did 
with like you're on the dog leash and you're like in a crate the whole time. So <laughs> I have a good a good uh, memory of positive memories of your previous video launches. So curious Thanks. to see what comes out of this one. Yeah, thank you. Are you releasing it on Gumroad or are you releasing it um, just like straight up a physical copy of a book? Uh, no, I am releasing it on Gumroad, but it'll be a it'll be a physical copy. It's just they can buy it through. That I get Gumroad. like if I if I order it, I'll get it as a physical copy and not a digital download. Yes, you'll get it in the mail. Okay, yeah, as a physical copy. You know, Kyle, know what we awesome. should do? What's up? We got a, a lot of episodes in the bank right now, so let's order a copy and give it away to someone who listens to this podcast and sends uh, some and leaves a review and sends a screenshot of it to us in the DMs. Why don't we? Do that with two copies. I dig it. I'm here for it. <laughs> we, what's our timeline on once the on the when the book's coming out? I just um, so I'm I'm like, releasing you know. the the uh, pre-launch today. So uh, that's part of the strategy is doing like a soft sort of pre-launch, uh, and then once that's died down, then come onto the scene with like a huge video uh, sort of production. Um, so hopefully getting drumming up orders and a little bit of attention up front and then really like pushing the actual launch hard. Mm -hmm. So if we order it today and publish this episode in three weeks, we'll have, we'll probably have a book in hand ready to ship out to someone. For sure. For sure. Sweet. Yeah, for sure. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm writing this down cause I don't have the memory to do that. <laughs> Kyle, if you have a question while I'm, while I'm making a personal note, we'll get that done. Uh, so Lewis is, um, sort of, entering the next phase of his life and I will be next year. Uh, and we're both looking at, at different cities around America that we could move to or, or not America. Um, and so this is a two part question. One, where do you think we should move for the most growth? And two, can you sell me on Nashville, even if it's not Nashville? Sure. So as far as one goes, I can't tell you, I can tell you like pockets of, I, I can give you, cities that I think are doing some interesting things, you know, like, um, Miami, I think is a really interesting city with what their mayor is doing and how, uh, pro business he is. I think that could be a really cool place. Um, I'm obviously biased towards Nashville, but, uh, Chicago is a great city, super creative. Um, I think it gives you, I mean, I think it's important for everyone to live in a huge city like Chicago to, to find out whether it's for them or not. Um, I don't want to give like kind of the standard answers like Austin, Texas, because I feel like that's super popular <laughs> right now, but Starbase. Yeah. Yeah. But I think like the main questions you, you two should ask yourselves is like write down five, five things that like make a city good. And to me, I, I would say, yeah, I would say weather is, is huge. I would say cost of living is huge. I would say um, drivability is huge, right? So like you take a hit on drivability and, and being able to travel in the city, maybe in Chicago, but you, you don't have to deal with that in uh, say Nashville, right? So drivability is huge. I would say um, like airport and travel is huge if that's something that you're, you're, you're wanting to do. And I would also say um, just like what's the what's the the life like and the culture there is it is it a really awesome culture like a like an austin is or a nashville or a chicago and yeah i would just write those out and every time you look at a city like take a serious look there i think like another thing that i see a lot of people make the mistake of doing is just up and moving someplace 
Um, and then all of a sudden they get there and they're like, holy shit, like this was a terrible decision and my life's here. Um, I would almost tell you take three months and really, really go to a place, travel there and try to experience it a little bit, not in vacation mode, but like in life mode. That was one mistake I made with Chicago. I just up and moved there without, uh, what I should have done is go there for a month, get a, get a modest Airbnb that wasn't like crazy, uh, get a gym membership and really start to kind of like live in the city. Um, and that can like keep you from making a serious mistake of ending up in a place that you, you don't want to be. Um, now, as far as Nashville goes, I think like the pros of Nashville is that it's really easy to travel around places. Um, that's something I love. Like I just jump in my car and can go to the gym. I can go to the coffee shop and it's easy, right? There's never any serious traffic. Um, the weather is great, save for July and August when it's just hot as hell. But the flip side of that is in the winter, you're not going to freeze your ass off. Um, it's super, super creative. So there's a lot of people like in the music industry, there's a lot of writers coming here. There's a lot of entrepreneurs here. Uh, so the creativity is good. The airport's like fairly solid. I don't think it's on the same level as somewhere like Chicago, but you can, you can get to, to where you need to go. Something that's really important to me is like direct flights mm -hmm. to major cities. I hate connecting like flights. That's, that's the problem with Birmingham. Yeah. Yeah. I hate it. I mean, I, uh, I, uh, it's just, I don't like changing planes. I don't know if it's just me, but I, I like getting on a plane. And so the nice thing about Nashville, you know, you got direct, uh, Chicago, direct to Miami, direct to Los Angeles, direct to New York. Like you get some, some direct flights to most big cities. So that's good. Um, now I wouldn't move, um, to Nashville if maybe you're looking for a big, big city feel because it, it just can't compete with a place like Chicago. You know, um, it can't compete with a place like New York. It's, it's, it's much, much smaller and there's a lot going on, but, um, something about Chicago is you could pick 30 things on any given weekend to do here in Nashville. It might be mm -hmm. five. So and I think final piece of advice, this was, took me a long time to learn is that happy, happiness and fulfillment is never on a location. It just has to be where you're at. And that took me a while to, to like, anytime I felt like shitty about myself or was going through a breakup or was miserable, I felt like I needed to go on a trip or travel or go to this new city. And I think like, unless you, until you become legitimately happy, just sitting in a room with a good book or going on a bike ride in your city, um, you know, you're not ever going to find that happiness somewhere else, or it might be there for a bit, but once you really get into the culture and, uh, get into your daily life and things become sort of, uh, daily, all of a sudden you're dealing with that shit again. So yeah, once you're past the honeymoon phase yeah, of yeah. moving to a new city, yeah, like, oh man, I, end up I'm really fucking unhappy, you know? So you gotta <laughs> confront that stuff sooner rather than the later. environment changed, but you haven't exactly, mm -hmm. uh, I do have one question, kind of wrong order here, but it's something I do mean to ask. One project, I I have a, a weekly newsletter. It's got a not a huge readership yet, but I wrote this like massive post and I like outlined an entire thing. Then I'm like, this sh should be an ebook, like not a newsletter. It's like way too long. It's not worth sending one email. Mm -hmm. I should like try to get some long value out of it. Now, is it useful for me with let's say a hundred subscribers on my newsletter to release a product on Gumroad? Like what? This is less about the copywriting and 
more about the, you know, you're an online content creator who sells digital products. Like what's the appropriate time to actually try to make an offer as a writer. And like, if I have something that I think could form the basis of a good ebook, am I just too early until I have more readers? Should I just write it? And then just sales will come in over time. Yeah. So I think that you said your list is how, how large, I mean, it's like a hundred people. I've been doing it for like just this past semester and a half. Okay, cool. Uh, and let's say that the ebook would probably be like 30 pages is what I'm thinking. 30 pages. So it's not like a year, it's not a year project. It's like a, a month project or something. A month project. Yeah. Um, I would say, man, if it's, if it's just a month project, you're good to, to do it. Right. If, if you're talking about like your life's work, you know, or like several years far I from think, that, I think it makes that. sense to, to, to hold off. Um, but yeah, if anything, I think it, if, if you have a product, that product will only continue to sell more as you grow your list. If it's a, if it's a quality product. So let's say your list is around, uh, is about, um, cool vintage, uh, band posters and you created a course on how to flip band posters. Um, even if your list right now is only a hundred people, you might drum up 20 sales off that list. But as your list continues to grow and you maybe make your band poster buying guide, the sponsor for your weekly newsletter, those, those sales are going to keep going as like more people join your list. So I think it's less at, with something smaller like that. I think it's less about finding the right time and more so just making sure the, 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 the chance to, to monetize is there before you start building. So yeah, I would say go for it. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. Uh, subscribe to Lewis's newsletter. It's actually really, really good. I might be a little biased, but you learn yeah. something every week for sure. Well, I'm trying to see if I have any, any final questions here. I know we're coming against our time. Uh, I love how different this interview turned out than the last one. I just want to point mm -hmm. that out that it's fun to get the repeat answers with a different spin and then fun to get some new questions and, and see how everything progresses with time. I've got one. Uh, go for it, Kyle. Yeah. So we might have to cut this out, but have you ever used a Bowflex and, and how are you supposed to use them? And like, and the reason you're asking that is that, right. Yeah. Cole you, you wrote all the copy for, right. yeah. <laughs> for Bowflex. Yeah. Just so it's not, it's, it's not just like, Hey, do you, have you ever done this? Do, I, do you ever just thing? work out with equipment? Uh, so, yeah. um, Real quick, I, I wrote specifically the copy for their C6 bike, um, so I was really heavily involved there. But um, Bowflex has been around since the, I mean, the 90s, right? So I, I obviously wasn't even alive then. So I had a very small segment, and the C6 bike was um, a competitor to, there is a competitor to Peloton. Um, so that was mm -hmm. kind of like why I was brought on, just to position the bike against that, that specific bike. Um, but to answer your question, I have used a Bowflex. I never have owned a Bowflex. Um, uh -huh. I think here's my stance on like home workout equipment. I think you should get home workout equipment um, for the reason that when it's there, I think that you, it's kind of like leaving your tennis shoes, uh, your running shoes by the door, right? If your running shoes are by the door and they're out and they're open and, and you're seeing them as a constant reminder, um, it's a little bit harder not to go on a run that day, like to choose just not to do it. Whereas if you keep your running shoes and like your workout clothes in your closet and in the very back in the dusty corner where you're never seeing them, um, it's probably easier to say, oh, I'm just going to go out and have like some beers with friends today and skip like my three mile run. I think that like a Bowflex or 
you know, any sort of workout equipment is probably functions like that in a way where if you have a, a Bowflex sitting in the corner of your room, uh, now all of a sudden you have to literally every single day look at that thing and, and make the conscious decision of, I'm not working out today, but at least you thought about it. So I think that that's the, the main benefit in owning at-home workout equipment. Well, I have one final question for you, and I'm actually staring at my mom's Peloton behind the camera. <laughs> so uh, funny, funny thing there. But and I have a set of actual Bowflex weights over here, the adjustable dumbbells. Great product. But fitness, fitness room podcast studio, it's a great combination. Uh, the reason why we invited you on the first time and I was kind of in a different mental headspace as far as what the weather made me feel like I wanted to do for my life career was copywriting. And it's something that we've really covered pretty loosely on this interview, just because we asked you all the copywriting questions last time, so that scratched our itch and whatever else. But I'd be, uh, I feel like we didn't fully appreciate, you know, your expertise if we didn't ask you at least one proper copywriting question. So someone is listening to this and seriously entertaining freelance copywriting as a career path, as a way of producing side income, what would either be the one best resource to start out with, or is it something they should just, you know, go send a hundred emails and start writing? Okay. Single, the single best resource. Uh, at, okay. So at, at the, at the basis of copywriting, there's, there's tons of copywriting sales books. There's a bunch of fucking idiots all over LinkedIn, like sharing copywriting hacks, but they never share their actual work that they've written copy for. So, uh, I think that there's a, I think that you should never uh, listen to a dog that says he can hunt, right? Uh, by his bark, you should actually like see if the dog can go out and, and hunt uh, a squirrel, right? Um, I think copywriters are the same way in that it's probably like not going to be super beneficial to read a bunch of copywriting books, at least like initially. I think something that could be good is just learning how to write well, because that's at the basis of all copywriting, just like learning how to write well. Now, there's a ton of hacks and strategies and you have to approach it with like a sales mind and that can all come later. Um, but I, I've never seen a bad writer make it as a copywriter. So at the basis of everything, I think you should hone your writing skills. And once you get to, once you get to a point where you can write a blog post or send an email and people are like, dude, that was pretty witty, you know, or, oh, I actually like read that from the top down. Then you can get into reading some of the classic copywriting books and exploring some courses. But, um, I think too many, I see a lot of people say, oh, I want to get into copywriting. They start enrolling in thousand dollar courses and buying all these books and they aren't even good writers. Right. So, um, I would learn how to write and how you learn to write is you write. You don't just you know, read books on copywriting. Um, a good, a great resource for learning how to write better though, is, uh, on writing by Stephen King. That's the most I iconic book I can think of just on, on learning to write well. Uh, so I would start there if you are, uh, wanting to get into it, but I would also tell you that there's no magic fix. Even my copywriting guide, which I've sold, um, I, I'm not going to say the numbers, but a lot of, a lot of those courses. And anyways, like that's not going to be some magic fix for you. You know, like you have to do the work, you have to write every day. You have to put out, like put out a 30 minute window and fill that window with writing. Um, and I saw you, you threw up, uh, on writing by Stephen King. It's a fabulous book. Well, I did buy the copywriting guide back in the day and I really enjoyed it. So after you got some writing experience under your belt and you're at the point where, advanced tips and tricks will help you. I highly recommend Cole's product, but Cole, this has been really fun. 
I'm grateful to you for coming on the podcast, not just once, but twice. You're officially the first person of the sec- the two interview club for Lewis and Kyle show. Uh, you have a lot of great content on the internet. Where should we direct people who enjoyed your answers to the questions today and want to get more from you on a one-time basis, on an every week basis, wherever? Sure. Yeah. Just send them to uh, www.honeycopy.com. Uh, there's a newsletters tab on the far right-hand corner. Subscribe to any of those and I'll be in touch within the week. Uh, and then I'm also on Instagram for the poetry. If they're more interested in that. That's just at Cole underscore Schaefer. Uh, and those are those are generally like the best places to connect with me. Thanks, guys. This was fun. That wraps up our interview with Cole Schaefer, the one and only copywriting extraordinaire, poet extraordinaire from Honey Copy. If you heard this whole interview, you probably heard us mention on air and spur of the moment that we wanted to give away two copies of his book. After her, a book of poetry I've been skimming through in the 20 minutes leading up to me recording this right now. I'm enjoying it so far. There's a lot of interesting poems, a lot of emotions, and it will certainly probably make you feel something. So details about this giveaway that we invented during the recording of this podcast, you can enter the giveaway in one of two ways. Share this episode, wherever you're listening to it, YouTube, podcast audio, whatever, on Twitter or Instagram, and tag us or DM us to make sure that we see it. And that will enter you into the giveaway. There's no reason to wait. We'll probably close the drawings for this in early July. So go ahead and get that out of the way. Now that I've gotten that out of the way, I'm going to share my three takeaways from this conversation. The first one, something I'm very passionate to, not the right word, but I'm very eager to explain to people, is people don't take full advantage of test driving. Uh, when we asked about Nashville, he's kind of like, well, I Airbnb there a couple times to get the feeling of what it's like to live there before committing to a year lease and finding out I hated it. I think a lot of us assume so many things are permanent when you really could test drive and see if you like them and come up with a way to test them in a finite way. And maybe that's something I could do with copywriting, seeing as that's a career path I'm considering pursuing, maybe try it for a month before saying, you know, that's what I'm going to do. Second is an actual copywriting or and or freelancing tip, negotiation tip, which is asking before you say, oh, I charge 30 an hour, 50 an hour, whatever, ask them what their budget is for getting the thing done. I think that's very helpful to get you to get what they're willing to pay, right? The price of something is what someone's willing to pay for it. And if they come out with a number, it might be higher than what you would have initially said. Third takeaway is just one, how he pursues greatness in life. But I think Kyle might say a little bit more of that. Spec, it's really about how he romanticizes life, how he kind of sees everything as so spicy and colors are more vibrant and tastes are more juicy and moments are more interesting. And I think that's a really healthy way to live and be appreciative and kind of enjoy the world more in our brief time in it. And I really admire that about him. Kyle, what about you? I really like those, Lewis. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so my three brief takeaways, the first of which is about storytelling. Obviously, he is a, an amazing storyteller. And I think a lot of that comes from what he's done with writing, but it really comes through when he's speaking as well. Like you can tell that he's written a lot by the way that he speaks and the way that he tells stories. And you know, I asked him about that in the podcast and he said basically that he's had to practice that. And so, um, you know, that's really cool. Just one, the power of storytelling and two, how even he who's written more words than I'll probably ever write had to practice being able to, to tell stories and to speak them out. Uh, the second of which is Nashville, as you talked a little bit about. Um, you know, after this podcast, well, during this podcast, we talked about it and then we actually were able to put a face to a name. We went up there and hung out with uh, our buddy David and, um, really saw the city for the first time. It was incredible, really enjoyed it. And so, uh, what he said about Nashville has a whole new light to me. Um, and then the third thing is about 
Lewis's third takeaway, and that is romanticizing your life. Um, you know, it's I think it's such an interesting point. It's like, like, what is the point if you're not um, looking at everything as if it's the last time you'll ever see it or, or like really soaking in what you are given and like what moments that like you are existing in rather than just being like, well, I got to do this and this and this and like we've got dinner after breakfast and, and breakfast tomorrow is going to be, you know, it's just like you can get so caught up in what's next. And so um, I think the idea of romanticizing moments is is really important and, and something that I've thought about. Um, and then sort of the other half of that is like, don't overweight perfection. Like not everything, nothing is going to be perfect. No moment um, is like going to be something where you're completely content with like no restaurant is going to be able, you're always gonna be able to find something wrong. And so like, rather than finding something wrong, just enjoy it, romanticize it, you know, live in it. And obviously that's some a problem that everyone, especially me deals with. And so, um, it's a good reminder, but, um, if you enjoyed this episode, we have a whole lot more that you can go listen to. Uh, all of them are probably a little bit, you know, similar to this. Two thirds of it, at least, are, are the exact same in Lewis and I. And so, um, go give them a listen. And if you really enjoy this one or any other one, please share it on social media. And if you're already on social media, sharing this podcast with you know your large following, you should just follow us at the Lewis and Kyle Show on pretty much every platform: Twitter, Instagram. Uh, not Snapchat, you know, basically just Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and then if you're feeling really frisky after all that, after you do all that, maybe just maybe you could drop us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps the podcast grow. It helps us get more great guests like Cole. Uh, and so, yeah, we really appreciate you listening and we're having a great time doing this and thank you for being a part of it. Um, hope you have a great day.